Well, we are currently teaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and some consider this to be the epitome of the teachings of Jesus and therefore the essence of Christianity. Now, this sermon is Jesus' answer to that philosophical religious question question, how can someone truly be happy? Or what is the good life? And that's really what Jesus is inviting his people into this, a vision of flourishing in his own way of life, a vision of human wholeness that we experience as we follow Jesus, who is the way, who is the truth, and who is the life. Now, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is first and foremost presented as the king of God's kingdom. You might remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes on the scene and he is proclaiming that the kingdom of God is here. And he's asking people to turn around, to reconsider, and to join God's kingdom. Not only that, but Jesus demonstrates the power of the presence of the kingdom of God, where he heals all who are sick, all who are afflicted by the devil, all of those aspects of sin and decay are pushed back in the presence of Jesus, the king over God's kingdom. Now here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins to unpack the way of the kingdom, the ethos, as it were, of God's kingdom. This is what God's kingdom looks like. This is who God is. This is what God's kingdom citizens act like, and he is inviting us into to learn his way of being so that the kingdom might be manifest in our lives in this world. Now, I believe that what Jesus is really saying is that now that I am here, God's new world is coming into being. And once we realize that, we'll see that what Jesus teaches in the sermon are these habits, these practices, these rhythms of life that we are to do which anticipate the new world here and now. And so purity of heart, mercy, peacemaking, and so on, they're not things that you do to earn a reward. They're not a way that you pay God back, but they are a way that you anticipate God's kingdom here and now until he comes. Now, Jesus, as our true king, teaches disciples the way of the kingdom life. It's a way to be lived, to be practiced and cultivated here and now. So we come this morning to the final section of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus has been showing us what kingdom righteousness will look like in a world that's still under the brokenness of sin, of evil, and of the devil. And so far, if you've been with us, we've looked at anger, we've looked at lust and desire, we've looked at marriage, divorce, oaths, and authenticity. And this morning, we're looking at how Jesus shows us what kingdom righteousness looks like in regards to vengeance, personal rights, and loving our enemies. And he's doing all this with this high, holy calling to imitate our Father who is in the heavens. So let's begin by just looking at this teaching, and I think some misunderstanding around the original teaching, and then we'll get further into our text. So Jesus gives us the teaching of the law of Moses. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Now, of course, this teaching is found throughout the law of Moses. You can find it in Exodus 21, 24, Leviticus 24, and then also in Deuteronomy 19. Now, how many of you are familiar with the bumper sticker that's got Gandhi on it? It says, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Thank you. Yes, that's right. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. You can see how through Gandhi and others' influence, there's a radical misunderstanding of what was being taught here in the law of Moses. I mean, just imagine, I have two boys. One's 13, the other one is 12. Imagine that this is what happened. Hudson has beat Judah's face in, you know, given him a bloody nose, and say, okay, boys, here we go. All right. Hudson, since you did this to Judah, Judah now gets to smash your face in. This is what God wants. Can you imagine a God like that? Can you imagine a parent like that? That this is how you would raise your children or that this is how you would infuse your own character into the culture of God's people. See, this is an often mistaken teaching about restitution. If you go back and look at the laws of the time, the laws of the surrounding nations at the time that the law of Moses was given, you'll see that there were protection for the upper class of society, but there were actually no protections for what were considered non-humans. Those would be slaves. Those would be women. Those would also be children and even the unborn. They were not protected by any of these laws, and they were often the objects of injustice. Uh, an example of this is in Hammurabi's law, right? Hammurabi actually had some uh, pretty good laws, but they actually only applied to a certain class of people. So if you were rich and powerful, you could basically get away with anything. Now, the law of Moses, however, was given as a restraint on evil, limiting revenge and especially protecting the weak and vulnerable of society. It applied to the rich and the poor, the slave and the free, male and female, adults and children, even sometimes to animals, which is beautiful. This is what God was instituting, that he would put a limit or a restraint on vengeance and thereby protecting the weak and vulnerable of society, in which it was so common for the rich and powerful to commit injustice, even as it is today. So this was the law, but for those of us who maybe have taken the time to read the Scripture, you might have noticed that there's also another way in Scripture. I just want us to think for a moment about the first murder in the Bible. Anybody familiar with that story? Yeah, the story of Cain and Abel. So Cain murders Abel. What does God do? Does God murder Cain? No. Of course, there is repercussions for his sin. He's driven away from the presence of God. He's driven from the ground. It doesn't yield fruit to him uh, in the way that it did. And Cain says, oh my gosh, this is so much for me to bear. Anybody that finds me will kill me. And God says, actually, no, Cain, I'm going to put a mark of protection on you. And whoever takes vengeance on you, I will avenge it sevenfold. What in the world? God is protecting a murderer. No, I would say rather God is ending the cycle of evil. That's what he's doing here. We also see this in the story of Joseph. Remember, Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then through time and circumstance, he comes into the place of the right hand of power in Egypt. 
And so his brothers come looking for grain because there's a famine, and now they are at his mercy. And he has the opportunity to repay them the evil that they had shown to him. But what does he do? He shows them kindness, grace, and forgiveness. We can see this pattern again and again throughout Scripture. You can see it with David and Saul. And of course, it comes to a climax in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus really is the one that incarnates his teaching more than any other person. Remember, when they hurled insults at Jesus, he did not respond. When they beat his face in, he did not swing back. And when they cursed him, he said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus incarnated a different way, and he gives us the same transforming initiative here. He's bringing his kingdom people into the fullness of what the law really was pointing to, which is a whole person righteousness that confronts evil not with evil, but with goodness and with grace. So Jesus says this, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand your coat over as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, we've been talking about this for the last five or so weeks. We need to understand that Jesus is taking the law of Moses. Jesus is not giving us more laws. He's giving us an insight to what the law was pointing to, the intention or the heart of the law. And Jesus gives his people illustrations of transforming initiatives. Okay, Illustrations like in a situation like this where somebody smacks you, what should you do? I don't know. Turn the other cheek. If somebody wants to take your shirt, well, give them your coat as well. Uh, somebody asks you to go one mile, go two with them. Give to the one who asks of you. These are illustrations of what kingdom righteousness might look like. They are not laws because they don't account for all scenarios and all possibilities in our responses to evil and injustice. And honestly, if we followed them like laws, we would probably allow evil and abuse to happen to ourselves and others. And I do not believe that that is Jesus' heart or intention for his people. With illustration, though, what Jesus is doing, church, is he's engaging you and I in our own transformation and in our own sanctification. He's inviting our imaginations, our whole bodies, our personal participation in doing kingdom righteousness and in so doing, transforming our character. I love this from Dallas Willard in Divine Conspiracy. He says this, the way of laws avoids individual responsibility for decision. It pushes that responsibility and possible blame onto God. Well, I'm just obeying. I'm just doing what I was told to do. It doesn't involve my mind. It doesn't involve my desires. It doesn't necessarily involve me in any way. I just do what I'm told. He says that is one reason why people who must have laws for all their actions lead such pinched and impoverished lives 
and develop very little in the way of genuine depth in godly character. What Willard is saying here is that following a law will never transform your character. Instead, God wants to engage your whole person in imagining what his kingdom righteousness might look like when lived out in your life, in my life, and in the varied circumstances in which we come into contact with evil and injustice that we will face in this world. How will we respond in a way that puts the righteousness of the kingdom of God on display? We have to imagine that. We have to put that into action. And when we do that, we will discover that we are living out the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, let's stop and talk for just a minute about the way of Jesus and human rights and a little bit about just our American culture in the way that we think about personal rights. Now, Scott McKnight, he points out that Jesus' illustrations actually involve the whole person. Listen to this. This is brilliant. He says, the slap represents a wrong done to my body, my person, my character. The coat represents wrong done to my property. The forced mile, a wrong to my liberty and the loan a wrong to my generosity. All of these are wrongs done to me that challenge my rights. So it's almost as if Jesus is like touching every right that we have as individual human beings, and he wants to affect that for his kingdom. Now, Remember, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish community that is under foreign occupation and rule. Remember, the Roman Empire was brutal. It was so incredibly oppressive. And you can imagine a desire to just vehemently defend every last bit of rights that you would have left. And yet... This is the challenge of living in the kingdom of God in the midst of this world. Whether we find ourselves in Russia, the Middle East, the UK, or the United States of America, we are challenged, faced with this dilemma. Will we live out the kingdom of God in the way of Jesus? Or will we live in the way of our culture, as everyone else lives, as everyone else thinks. Now, I highly doubt that Jesus' teaching would be lessened to a culture as free as ours. Yet, in a society that has so many individual rights and liberties, which we're very thankful for, it would seem that we are preconditioned and even taught to defend these rights and freedoms at all cost. Uh, Preston Sprinkle, he's written an excellent book called Fight, and it's a case for non-violence as followers of Jesus. And he just kind of talks about how almost in every area of discomfort, we are just creatures of comfort. That's what we want. Listen to this. This is fascinating. He says, we live in a culture where all forms of suffering are avoided or at least medicated. I get a headache and I pop a pill. Amen. 
I get hungry and I immediately eat. Yeah, because I'm starving, right? If I feel cold, I put on one of my many coats. If I get tired, I rest. If I catch a cold, I crawl into bed, call in sick, and pop another pill. And if someone thinks about oppressing me, whoa, watch out. Our culture gives us no categories to view suffering, especially suffering at the hands of an oppressor, as victory. Our culture sees suffering only as defeat, only as evil. So I say all this just to make the point Jesus' teaching is radically countercultural to our Western ideas of personal rights. And this teaching is a soul check as to which kingdom we are living in, which kingdom we are building, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self and the kingdom of individual rights. See, because in the kingdom of self and individual rights, it is normative and assumed that we will respond to evil with vengeance or maybe even more evil. It's the normal state of affairs. It's the way the world is. And Jesus says, we are not to retaliate with violence, but with mercy and grace. Okay, let's talk for one more minute, just a little side conversation about bad Bible translations. You guys ready for this? NIV. I love the NIV. But do not resist the evil person is an unfortunate translation. See, the word resist actually has this idea in it of resisting with violence or resisting with evil. Paul, later in Romans 12, he will say, do not repay evil with evil evil. This is the same idea, almost the same words that Jesus is using here. And so sometimes we read this and we think, oh my gosh, is Jesus calling us just to not do anything? Is he like calling us, okay, you know, just let evil happen, get your face bashed in, and just let evil run amok? No, he is not. Jesus is actually calling us to respond to evil, and I believe that the New Testament is calling us to do that aggressively, strongly. I believe that the New Testament writers in the way of Jesus are calling us to respond to evil with aggressive love, with aggressive forgiveness and mercy. I think actually in these situations, Jesus wants his people to take control. When we see evil and injustice happening, we are to confront that evil with love and mercy, and by doing so, we will expose evil for what it truly is. Now, listen to Paul in his letter to the Romans. He is expounding on this idea in the teaching of Jesus. In 12.17, he says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So again, just like Jesus... Paul wants us to give thought. He wants us to use our own imaginations in how we should specifically respond to evil in a way that is faithful to our identity in Jesus and our identity as citizens of God's kingdom. Now, I want us to note that the word here, honorable, is the Greek word kalos. And this word can mean all of these things. Listen, beautiful. Repay no one evil for evil, but give place to do what is beautiful. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give place to do what is excellent. Repay no one evil for evil. Give place to do what is surpassing. Repay no one evil for evil, but give place to do what is commendable. Repay no one evil for evil, but give place to do what is admirable. Repay no one evil for evil, but give place to do what is beautiful to look at. Repay no one evil for evil, but give place to do what is magnificent. Do you get the idea here, church? I think what Jesus is calling us to do is to shock the world in our responses to evil. What is normative, what is assumed, what is expected in the world is that we will repay evil with evil. Actually, that we will go harder, that we will go further. And Jesus says, my people are to flip that script. And they are to do what is beautiful, what is, stands out, what cuts through. And in so doing, we put the life of Jesus and the way of God's kingdom on display. Jesus is calling his people to confront evil with a response that is out of this world, a way that is shocking to the way the world is, the status quo of the world. He's calling us to be more clever and creative in our responses to evil than just retaliation and revenge. Respond with a grace and beauty that is out of this world. Now, I would say that of all the teachings of Jesus that we've covered so far, whether it's anger, lust, marriage and divorce, oaths, this is the one where you're like, really? I mean, come how? Who can do this? Okay, well, first of all, Jesus actually did this. This is the way that he lived. But... Wherever this command has been taken seriously, church, it has proved a powerful witness to the kingdom of God. So I want to give just an example from history and then one from literature. How many of you have seen the film Hacksaw Ridge? A few of you, okay. If you can stomach it, it's a movie about World War II, Battle of the Okinawa. It's gory. It's intense. If you can stomach it, that is your homework for this evening. Okay. Desmond Doss was an American pacifist combat medic in World War II, and he was a deeply convicted Christian and a conscientious objector. But he felt in his person, I cannot stand by and watch all my countrymen go to war while I do nothing. So you know what he does? He signs up to be a medic. He goes into battle without a gun, and in the Battle of Okinawa, he saves 75 men single-handedly, without defending himself, he even saves some of the enemy. This is one of those stories, you watch this film, and the way that this guy is persecuted for his faith, they mock him, they can't believe he's going to go into battle like this, he's an idiot, and when he does it, when he begins to save all these people, everyone is like, who is this person? He shocks the world, he cuts through the darkness, 
And this is what the kingdom of God does any time we engage the way of Jesus. He was awarded the Medal of Honor. This is a Christian man simply living out the way of Jesus in a horrific context of world combat. Wow, it's a true story. How in the world does someone do something like that? And we'll talk about this a little bit. But church, I am not in any way, and I don't think Jesus is in any way suggesting that we just like jump right in, right? Like, okay, we're all going to go to war tomorrow. Nobody's going to bring a gun, right? And we're all going to live in the way of Jesus, and it's going to go great, right? And probably all get medals of honor, right? It's like, how does someone get there to live like that and do a heroic act like that? I'll tell you how someone does that. They live out this way of being every single day in non-flashy, seemingly unimportant ways. And their character grows and grows and grows and grows so that when they come into a situation as world-shifting, as radical as this, they do exactly what they've been practicing for all along. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Wherever you are this morning, wherever you're coming into the way of Jesus, you may be very new to this. He is asking you, calling you to begin your training in his way of non-retaliation, in his way of repaying evil with goodness, with kindness. Practice this in small, seemingly insignificant ways. And guess what? One day you can and you will forgive where you thought it was absolutely impossible. You can and you will repay with beauty and kindness and goodness, something that you could never imagine repaying. That is how the Spirit of God transforms our life. It's over a lifetime. And this is what Jesus is inviting us into. Now, there's another example that I want to share because I think that this is probably the most beautiful example in all of Western fiction. Uh, Les Miserables. How many of you guys have seen the film, went to the play, um, read the book? How many of you guys read the book? I have to put my hand down. I know. It's like 900 pages or something. One day. So Jordan and I were talking about this the other day, and it's one of our favorite stories. And I think it is the most Christian story that's ever been produced in Western society. And it's fascinating to think about because it actually comes out of the, one of the most secular, anti-God moments of history, right? Think about the Enlightenment. We think about what happened in the French Revolutionary War. Uh, you know, churches are burned. Priesthood is murdered. I mean, it's just horrific, just the bloody brutality of that time. And yet out of this comes one of the most redemptive stories ever. So, Long intro, sorry about that. Um, the story of this man, Jean Valjean, he's a thief, and that's just what he knows. It's the way that he's always lived. And finally, he's released from prison, and uh, due to the kindness of a local bishop, the bishop brings him in and feeds him, cares for him, um, gives him a nice warm place to rest for the evening. And because Jean Valjean is a thief and this is all he's ever known in the way he's always lived, what he does is when that priest or excuse me, that bishop goes to sleep that night, he steals the silver, the house silver, all basically of his worth and possessions. Well, the police catch up with Jean Valjean. They arrest him because, you know, he looks shady, right? So they bring him back. They present him to the bishop. Said, we found him, you know, here it is, you know, and he's returning the silver. And the bishop in that moment 
He says, my friends, why did you leave without taking the silverware? Don't you know how much it's worth? And he begins to bag it. And he's looking at Jean Valjean right in the eyes. And so the police officers are like, okay, well, this isn't what we thought. Like they're kind of like not really sure what's going on. And the bishop leans into Jean Valjean. And he says, with this silver, I have bought your soul from blackness and I give it back to God. And Jean Valjean from this moment is forever changed because someone repaid his evil with goodness, with mercy, with generosity. And it forever changes his trajectory and he lives on this trajectory for the rest of his life, grace. Everything is grace. While Javert, the police officer, cannot comprehend, cannot understand grace, lives by law, and in the end, he takes his own life. This is what Jesus is talking about. Repaying evil with goodness, with kindness, with generosity. And he is, again, inviting us to participate in this work. You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Whenever we participate in the way of Jesus, we take up that story and live it out in our lives. You know, church, in some sense, we write the next chapters of the story of God. The next thing that God is doing in the world by his spirit through his people is happening through you and I. And as we take up the story of Jesus, the way of Jesus, we assimilate it into our own lives and live it out. God is writing the next chapters that they'll tell in the annals of the kingdom of God. These are the works of God that he has called us into. Now, we might see this response to evil as an incentive towards turning the evil person around. And I did give that example in Lamez. So if we're thinking that, it's my fault, right? Maybe we see this as an evangelistic tool or incentive. Uh, you know, maybe God will use it in this way. Jesus doesn't say that. He does not suggest that the evil person will stop their evil ways or that this will turn people toward faith in God. And I think sometimes we look at the Sermon on the Mount and everything that Jesus is saying about character and we think, oh yeah, you know, salt of the earth, light of the world. And yes, it is that, but I want us to notice Jesus says something different here. Listen. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Verse 45, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, you're at zero. Good job. You didn't do anything, right? Don't even the tax collectors do this? And if you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than others? You're at zero. The pagans do this. No, no. Be perfect, Jesus says, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
See, Jesus is actually saying, this isn't just good for evangelism. This is actually good for us. God has a much higher goal and aim for our lives, and that is that you and I would live in him, that we would experience such deep fellowship with God, with Jesus, by the Spirit, that his life would be reflected through our lives, that we would reflect the family likeness, the family DNA in our person, and it would be reflected in all times and all circumstances. Because see, Jesus is not just calling us to love that difficult person or to you know, be loving or generous in this situation or that. He is calling us to a way of being, a way of love that transcends all of that. This is why Paul will say, Love is the fulfillment of the law. Because if you love your neighbor, guess what? You will do no harm to your neighbor. You will only do goodness. It's this high and holy calling. A non-violent, non-retaliatory, loving our enemies response is the practical outworking of being sons and daughters of the God who is in his very nature love. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He is calling us to love the other, to forgive, to bless, and even pray for our enemies. And I love this picture that Jesus gives of sun and of rain. Like, can you imagine the rain? Like, just choosing to decide on some people, I mean, sorry, to fall on some people. I think I saw that like in a Peanuts comic one time, right? Like everywhere Charlie Brown goes, the rain follows him, but no one else, right? It doesn't happen, that's why it's funny. It doesn't happen that way. The same thing with God. God cannot withhold his kindness from the world because that would be to withhold himself. It just flows from his being. I love this quote from Anthony DeMello from The Way to Love. He says, what is indiscriminate compassion? Well, take a look at a rose. Is it possible for the rose to say, I shall offer my fragrance to good people and withhold it from bad people? Or can you imagine a lamp that withholds its rays from a wicked person who seeks to walk in its light? It could only do that by ceasing to be a lamp and observe how helplessly and indiscriminately a tree gives its shade to everyone, good and bad, young and old, high and low, to animals and every living creature, even to the one who seeks to cut it down. This is the first quality of love, its indiscriminate character. Jesus is calling us, his people, into perfect love. See, that's what he's talking about when he talks about being perfect. You know, sometimes we are reading the Sermon on the Mount and we're like, okay, I've kind of got my grounding. I understand how to navigate this sermon and apply it. And then you come to this, be perfect as your heaven and father is perfect. You're like, oh my gosh, forget it. I can't do it. Ah, what is this? Oh no, this, ah, what about so I finish my grace? And like, it just like throws you for a loop. Am I alone in this? Come on. Like how many of you are like, oh, you know, it all makes sense. What the heck is this? How do I do this? Okay, the word perfect is the word teleos. 
Now, you might be familiar with this word because Jesus says the word tetelestai from the cross. It's a word that means complete or it can mean paid in full. A debt is fully paid. It has this idea of maturity, wholeness. That's the idea here. Now, remember, don't rip it out of its context. Jesus is not demanding be perfect like God's perfect, right? In the context, we are talking about God's non-discriminatory love. That's the idea here. He is calling us into his way of being, his way of love that loves all people. It's seen in both sun and rain that fall on all people, regardless of who they are and what they've done, whether evil or good, deserving or undeserving. That's the perfect way of being that Jesus is calling us into. God's perfect love. I love the way that N.T. Wright in his book, After You Believe, puts this. It's, it's so good. He says, love is the language they speak in God's world. And we're summoned to learn it for the day when God's world and ours will be brought together forever. It's like the music they play in God's courts. And we're invited to learn it and practice it now in advance. And here's the line. Love is not a duty. It's not even our highest duty. Love is our destiny. And guys, this is what we've been talking about all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Get the vision of what God has called you and I to. God has called us to himself to be his beloved children through Jesus' salvation wrought through us through his life, his death, his resurrection, and his eternal reign. He has brought us into his family. He has brought us into his kingdom, and he wants us to learn now his family way, the family ethos, the way of the kingdom of God until he comes so that we can rule and reign with him. And so and when we understand that, we'll see love is not just a law that we live by. It's not just our duty that we do. No, it's a destiny because God has called us to himself. And so we practice this way of love because, wow, this is the currency of the kingdom of God. This is the music of the kingdom of the heavens. This is the character of the God who is love. Now, in closing, I just want to talk about this for a moment. You may be thinking, okay, yeah, this viewpoint is very in vogue in our day and age, right? And actually, many people who would not call themselves Christians of any kind take a nonviolent, non-retaliatory approach towards evil. I mentioned Gandhi's uh, wisdom earlier in the really cool bumper sticker, you know, that people like. Um, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And, Gandhi sees that retaliation solves nothing. I agree with that. It only just exacerbates evil in the world. The problem with this is, okay, what is the alternative, right? Because sometimes it seems that uh, some, simply to be non-retaliatory, to be non-violent, also just exacerbates evil. Do we believe in justice? It doesn't seem to take evil and the injustices done to others and ourselves seriously. 
And so maybe you have a nonviolent, non-retaliatory approach toward evil, and it's based off society's influence. And I would just like to humbly suggest that maybe for you, if you're younger, it might be due to the fact that you maybe have not personally lived long enough to see and experience true evil. It could also be, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to travel outside the Western Hemisphere, or you've never personally experienced violation of your rights or of your person, and this would actually do to, be due to your class. You live a privileged life to some degree. Because honestly, when you look at the rest of the world, you travel to other places in the world, the world is evil. There is dark, unspoken evils that are done in this world. The raping and molestation of children, the exploitation of you know, teen prostitution all throughout the world. I mean, just the most horrific things done. We're still finding mass graves whole people groups that have just been wiped from the face of the earth. And we could go on and on and on about the atrocities of history. When I think about this, I think about that quote from Edmund Burke, the only thing needed for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. How can Jesus say this? How do we reconcile a God of love with the God of justice? Does God relax his justice in Jesus? What I would like to suggest and offer to you is that Jesus himself offers us a third way. Where some might say just forgive and forget, others would say we must retaliate or there is no respect for life and no justice. The scripture presents us with the suffering servant on behalf of all of humanity. Isaiah the prophet wrote, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. God invites us into his way of being because this is exactly what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. Allowed people to take advantage of his generosity, his kindness, his property, and his person. God calls his people to love their enemies because this is exactly what God has done and continues to do.
and he is calling us into his way of being. This is exactly what God has done for us. The only innocent person who has ever lived suffered great injustice. He was crushed, punished for us. He did not open his mouth. He did not retaliate, but he committed himself to God who is just in his judgments. And the Father raised him to life on that third day, and he lives and reigns forevermore. And one day he will establish his kingdom of justice, of goodness, and of mercy, and he will reign on earth forevermore. This is the promise of Scripture. See, what happens in the cross, and we've talked about this before, but it's this picture where Christ ends the evil at the cross. He kills it. He swallows it in his own body, and yet it destroys him. But it ends the vicious cycle of repaying evil for evil. And he calls us as his people to continually live by the way of the cross. To respond to the evils and the injustices of the world in the same way that he did, that we would pray for our enemies, that we would bless those who persecute us. This is his way, and he invites us into that way. Jesus is only asking us to do for others what he has already done for us.